Welcome to the Queen Trail Podcast. Meditation doesn't have to be sitting still and having an empty mind. The journey is such a beautiful thing because we are all on a journey. You want to make sure you have some kind of distribution plan, or at least have an idea of it, because you can make this really amazing film and it only gets seen by your family and friends. Old Hollywood is still intact. Every horse runs hard, but when they win, and they know it. They've got this little sass about them. It was pretty rough. I had to go into the water and with my med pack, swim to the beach, treat these guys, put them on my back, swim out to the helo. And I'm like, oh my God, I've never seen those before. And I said, what are those? And before I could even finish the sentence, she said, oh my God, you didn't touch them, did you? Even if monarchs go away and we never see one again, because there never will be monarchs again, it's a dial. It is just a little indicator of larger threats my dad said, so what were you guys doing in the desert? And I said, we were taking nude photos. Hey, everybody. I hope you had a great week since the last time that we got together. We just celebrated Mother's Day. So I want to send a huge belated shout out to incredible moms. And it was really funny because last week, I had all of these people, I mean, it was just like such a surprise, like on Wednesday, run up to me and earnestly wish me a happy Mother's Day. And for a second, I was so confused. And to be honest, I'd had this moment of dread, like, oh, crap, I forgot Mother's Day. Like, my calendar is totally off track. It dawned on me after a moment that it was Mother's Day in Mexico on Wednesday. So belated, gracias y felicidades para todas madres. You know, I'm really lucky that my mom is still with me. I got to visit her yesterday. So I just want to take a moment to recognize her, especially because she's got, of course, a very special place in my life. And she's always been just a really adventurous person. And I think that the fact that she left Costa Rica about a month before I was born really emphasizes that. And, you know, it's hard to encapsulate a mom in a few short words, right? So I'm going to pick one moment from my life that kind of encapsulates her many talents and her personality in a nutshell. And that is a trip that we took. It was a camping trip. So pretty much the whole time that I was growing up, we were camping every single moment that we could. We were on these crazy adventures all the time. And it was all driven, right? So we never flew to like we'd leave California and we'd drive to Wyoming. And we'd stop at places along the way. But most of the time, it was destination oriented. So as I've grown up, I meander like I have a destination, but I'm also like, what else is there along the way, right? And so it's going to take me 10 days to get there because I want to stop at all the cool places along the way. We didn't do that. We would usually just drive straight through. And if it was really far away, we'd stop maybe like at a KOA campground or something like that, which at the time, I was eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, somewhere around there, you know, on these various trips. And at those ages, you don't really want to stay at a KOA campground. So 
Um, it, and actually, to be honest, I wouldn't want to stay at one now. I don't really like camping, despite all of the camping that I did growing up. So, you know, when we would pull into these places, it would be really late at night because my dad was just a road beast. I mean, he would take off from the house and drive and drive. And, you know, every once in a while, my mom would switch off with him, but mostly it was him driving. And the way that my mom set up the car is that she would put a cooler in the middle of the back seat. We had a Chevy Nova, so it wasn't the most comfortable vehicle to be driving from state to state to state in. Um, But what she would do is she would put that cooler in between the seat. And I think part of that was to keep my sister and I separated. We're two and a half years apart. And, you know, I have some great memories growing up, but really long road trips have a way of making people in the car cranky. And especially when you're a young kid and you're really fidgety, like you can only play Uno and Old Maid and Go Fish and whatever it was that we were playing for so long and eat so many snacks from the cooler uh, before you got just really antsy and started picking on each other. So there's a lot of those memories. We had some stupid game that was bang, boom, out of town. And so when you saw a license plate that was from another state, you would punch each other. And so we would try to spot those license plates first. My parents put a stop to that really quickly. But I do remember that that was one of the things. And then, you know, then you're just like hitting each other for whatever reason. So we would pull into these campgrounds in between places like the Grand Tetons or Laysan Volcanic National Park or the Grand Canyon. I mean, like we went to some really super cool places, but they were really far away. So we had to drive and there would be the stops in between and we'd pull in. And I just remember this one time, I don't even know if it was a KOA campground or if it was just like off the side of the road or where the heck we were. But it was Nevada, and we had been driving through miles and miles of desert road with just like saguaro cactuses or whatever other type of of plants were out there in the desert. And the Milky Way was above us in all of its glory. It was just so spectacular. There were no lights anywhere where we were driving through and we finally pulled off and set up this tent and I remember we got it all set up and then just before I went to bed I thought I'm not sleeping in here I'm gonna take my sleeping bag and pull it outside and I had this like little romantic idea in my mind of you know like the desert traveler that rolls out their bedroll and sleeps underneath the stars next to the campfire and I'm telling you, if I had a guitar, I would have been out there plinking on those strings. But I do remember that it was just like such a glorious, beautiful night until I actually fell asleep. And I just wanted to look at those stars. And it was really beautiful on this little camping spot off the side of the road. (laughs) So anyway, back to this time that I think kind of encapsulates my mom and her talents we drove to a camping spot and it wasn't that long of a drive. We actually left after school. 
I believe. And it was probably like Memorial Day weekend or something like that. You know, so it was a nice long weekend. My dad was really into radio controlled airplanes and he picked this specific campground so that he could fly his latest model. He would handcraft these. So he cut out like all of the little pieces of balsa wood. I remember going to the hobby store with him to pick out the right pieces of balsa wood, pick out those propellers. He had the exacto knives. He had like little grinding machines in the garage. I mean, the whole shebang, it was great. And we got there and my sister and I had been coloring in the car. This was kind of a disaster in every way that you can imagine. It was a really hot weekend and we left those crayons on the back console of the car. And it was like brand new 64 crayon box of Crayolas. We ran out of the car. My parents told us, go and play. And they were the kind of parents who, like, if we were in Yellowstone or Yosemite or wherever the heck it was that we went to, they'd be like, go out and play in the woods and be back by a certain time. And my sister and I were really curious, intrepid kids, but we were like really good kids. So we always came back. You know, we weren't the kids who would be stealing alcohol or cigarettes or anything like that. In fact, When my mom first married my dad, he was a smoker and we would be hanging our heads out the window because he'd smoke in the car, he'd smoke in the airplane. And it was the worst thing ever, like we hated it. So I'm a little grateful for that because I never smoked. You know, we just go out there and we find pine cones and cool rocks and pick up lizards. Uh, We knew which snakes were not the ones that you could pick up and which ones were. So we picked those up. I mean, we were tough little kids. And so this time, you know, they did the same thing. And my dad said, well, you know, I'll put the tent up. Your mom's going to cook. You guys go out and have fun. And we were having a great time. And we were like splashing in a stream or something like that, you know, skipping rocks, whatever it was that we were doing. And my mom eventually came out to find us. And she said, you know, I have a surprise for you. And we're like, ooh, cool. So we followed her back to the camp. And the surprise was that all of our clothes got left behind. And we only had the clothes that was on our backs. And my sister, her name's Tanya, Tanya and I were not happy about this. You know, again, young kids will express whatever they're feeling. And it was like, I have to wear the same clothes all weekend long. Oh, this is such a calamity. The one thing that my mom had brought, and it's really kind of funny because she was really into bandanas at the time, was like a case full of bandanas. I don't know, she had like 10 of them or something. And she also had a bunch of dish towels. So she was the most amazing seamstress. She was this person who could see what the fashions were on TV, like, you know, what Raquel Welsh was wearing, what whatever the stars of the time period were wearing. And she could duplicate very similar clothing on her little sewing machine. And it was just magic. And, you know, so she grabbed these bandanas and she grabbed the dish towels and she fashioned little shorts out of the dish towels for us. And she fashioned these really cute little tank tops 
out of the bandanas. So we were clothed all weekend long and she made the most amazing food. And it didn't matter with my mom whether she was cooking on a stove or she was cooking over a fire pit. It was always super great. So I did mention that this was a disastrous weekend. The spot that my dad picked because it was really close to the area where he wanted to fly his plane, you know, there weren't like a ton of trees and it was actually not a very pretty campsite. It was pretty close to this secluded parking lot where most people didn't even know it existed. And the lake was nearby, but still it was asphalt. And we did have a spot under some trees nearby, but we also were right next to this yellow jacket nest. So my mom's cooking dinner and all of a sudden we're getting just harassed by these damn yellow jackets. And my dad was explaining that like, don't swat these things because not only do they bite, but they can literally bite you just to get a better grip of your skin so they can sink that stinger in. I mean, they're really aggressive. They were fighting us for our food. They're like so intrepid. You know, you're holding a burger. And if you've ever been anywhere where yellow jackets are, you know what I'm saying. And so, you know, I dropped my burger. I went running off into the woods screaming (laughs) and eventually we moved our campground because we realized that we can't live next to this yellow jacket nest. We didn't do it that night because everybody was just tired and the tent was already set up and it was like, you know, we'll move in the morning. In the morning, we got out to the car and the heat of the sun had melted the box of 64 crayons. And it was this beautiful silver wax river with rainbow colors going through it from one side to the other of my mom's rear console. We let it melt again, clean that up. My mom wasn't super thrilled (laughs) because that was her car. I think it took a few hot days of wax being released and wiped up uh, probably the rest of the summer before it all disappeared again. But she was, you know, she was amazing. She dressed us. She made sure that we had food in our stomachs. She made sure that we moved to a safer spot. And she's just always been that kind of supportive rock for us, you know, making sure that we're always protected and safe. And so, you know, happy Mother's Day, Mom. Speaking of adventures, this next episode of In the Company of Friends Talks is with my dear friend, Don Atwood, who is just a lifelong adventurer, intrepid. On March 7th, he took off from the Sea of Cortez, where he and his sailing partner, their sailboat is called First Light, were set up as a final staging area for the last bit of preparation to take off on a sail across the Pacific. Between March 7th and March 19th, they headed further south, and then on March 19th, they took off for French Polynesia. They reached landfall on April 11th, as they approached the port of Hiva'owa. One of the cool places that you'll hear him talk about that he actually got to visit and had been a lifelong dream of his was Fatu Hiva. It took him 21 days of sailing to make it there. And they hung out for a while. I think they are back on that 
great conveyor belt, ocean blue road, so to speak, of the Pacific, heading to their next destination. So please grab a cuppa and enjoy this amazing talk with my friend, Don Atwood. It's kind of neat. This It's a neat little rig. And I bought all this stuff for making guitar and ukulele recordings. But um, how's it sound now? It sounds perfect. Good. Yeah. Okay. This is really good. I, I, I took, I've got to actually take one of the headphones off. I find that if I don't do that, I can't hear my own voice. And it seems really strange. <laughs> this um, is so great. So are you making a lot of recordings? I know I haven't done much of anything. In fact, I've been so obsessed with boat things lately that uh, I haven't even touched my guitar in about a week and a half, which is a real shame and, and very unusual. That is probably such a source of stress reduction, right? Normally is, yeah, absolutely. But uh, when you're when you've got lots of stress coming from every other aspect of your life, and, <laughs> and I've sort of gone beyond the point of just kind of noodling and strumming songs that I know. I'm actually trying to get good at it, which puts a little bit of pressure on it. I could be a perfectionist, and I'm striving hard to up my skill level. And mm-hmm. uh, so it's not trivial. It's like, this is work. I've got, actually, I, I've got to make a commitment to this. Be a grumpy old man singing that song. Like, we'll, see, <laughs> we'll see how it goes. I can't imagine you being a grumpy old man. You're so adventurous. And I know that you're getting ready right now to go on a huge adventure. It is, yeah. Uh, the the first, well, first I've got to get down to sort of the staging point. Um, I'm with Julie here, my sailing companion, my partner, and we're up in a really beautiful town that I'd never been to before. It's uh, San Carlos on the mainland coast up in the Sea of Cortez and absolutely gorgeous. I'm surrounded by some of the most beautiful topography. It's this gorgeous natural harbor with a really fine marina kind of a discovery. I'm mean, having explored this this area for quite some time. I've never bothered to go over to the mainland coast. Mm-hmm. But from here, with favorable winds, we'll sail down to Puerto Vallarta, and that will be the staging point for heading off to the Marquesas. That's so exciting. You sent me a picture, and I just now when you said you've never actually been to this section of the Sea of Cortez, I was really surprised because I know that you go there a lot. And also, I just wanted to put out the invitation if Julie wants to join in the conversation. She's welcome to. Actually, she's off doing laundry right now, which oh. is perfectly fine. So there's always chores to be done on the boat. Yeah. But, um, the the next, you mentioned this this big adventure, and the, actually the very first step of it is rather daunting. From Puerto Vallarta to the very first island in the island group of the Marquesas, French Polynesia, is 2,750 miles. So if you, if you think wow. about it, it would be equivalent to driving across continental United States at about six miles an hour. Oh my gosh. It's a, it's a long, slow trudge. It will take something on the order of probably three three to four weeks to complete, depending upon whether we get stalled out in, uh, in the doldrums or something. But um, it's going to be interesting. You know, 24-7, you're dealing with squalls that might be coming your way. You're dealing with large swells. Uh, you're enjoying the beauty of nature and this and the seabirds that are flying overhead. It's it's going to be quite the adventure. And the destination itself, the Marquesas, are something that I've probably dreamt about for I was thinking about it last night, probably thirty to forty years. At some point I'd read Herman Melville's Teepee, which is a description of the Marquesas. And I've seen photos of this spectacular landfall, this island. It's Fatuhiva down in the south. 
and there's this anchorage that is just stunning. It's got these magnificent karst formations rising up. And for obvious reasons, if you see a photograph of it, it's always been called the Bay of Penises by the, by, by the local <laughs> inhabitants. But I, th I, think, I think the missionaries must have played their role because at some point, very ironically, they changed it from Bay of Penises to Bay of Virgins. <laughs> so, oh my gosh, is that funny? These, these, these tall spires still tower up from the harbor, but it is now a location of virgins. I am looking at a picture of it. That was actually um, a very appropriate name for it. It does look like a bunch of penises. And, it, you know, it's so funny because I have this collection of photographs of nature looking like human anatomy. And there are so many penises and butts. And I actually inadvertently took a picture of the kids above this rock formation and right below them, it looks like th this rock is giving birth to them because it looks like a vagina. And I thought, well, I cannot put this picture up anywhere. It's just, it was, it was, it was shocking when I saw it, how much it looks like it, but there's a lot in nature that looks like that. You know, you go into some of these caves, like um, it's the one that's in New Mexico, the big giant underground cave with the stalactites. Oh, Carl's, Carlsbad, yeah. Yes, that one. And a lot of those rock formations look like human anatomy. So I could see that, but I could also see how when the religious conquistadores came through, they would change the name. <laughs> but but the, the thing you could always do, Syl, you can go ahead and post it. And if anybody says anything snide, you just snap back immediately. Get your mind out of the gutter. What are you right. thinking? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think with that particular picture, I'll find it and I'll send it to you because th there's no way to take your mind out of the gutter with that picture. It's just very much nature imitating humanity. And I think that it's great, you know. <laughs> So this is Fatu Hiva, you said. That's right. And uh, officially, one should not be going there first, but it's the it's the one that's closest, and it's the one to windward. So if you miss the opportunity to see it right off the bat, you're probably not ever going to make it against the trade winds to get back there. So albeit not our official first stop, First Light may in fact drop anchor in that little harbor for a photo opportunity and appreciate the beauty for a day or two before we head off where we can truly enter the Marquesas for the first time. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I feel like I'm jumping ahead because this is 2,500 miles out of when you first take off, right? That's actually a little bit more than that, but yeah, it's a full three plus weeks to get there, right? Wow. Are there um, hiking trails or do you have plans once you get there of what you're going to be doing? French Polynesia has these three clusters or grippings of islands, and the Marquesas, the easternmost ones, are these just spectacularly tall, verdant mountains full of waterfalls and valleys and ponds to swim in. So, yeah, absolutely, it's our hope while we're there in the Marquesas to hike up into the probably sweltering mountains. I don't know what to expect temperature-wise, but going up into the mm -hmm. jungle bathing beneath waterfalls and just exploring mm -hmm. the area. And also it's rich in culture. There's, uh, there's ruins that date back hundreds or, you know, a thousand years and a remarkable culture that stood there and developed for as long. So it'll be interesting on, in lots of different ways. 
This is really incredible. I'm just looking at pictures of it that I just pulled up here online and it, it looks so beautiful. So it's going to be three weeks to get there. What are, um, I kind of feel like I'm going to be jumping around a little bit because I've got so many questions, but what are the plans? How do you get started on such a journey? What are the expectations for three weeks? What are you going to be doing for three weeks in the middle of the ocean? <laughs> well, I, I said I need to practice my guitar more, so certainly that will be one aspect of it. I've got lots of Kindle books awaiting me. And when you have just like two people on board a boat, you do a watch schedule where typically what we do is three hours on, three hours off. So your, your sleep pattern is very much broken up. You get up, you're on watch, you're responsible for making sure there's no ships that are going to hit you, that there's no islands that you're going to run aground on. Um, and then you get a chance to go to sleep. And if you're able to get to sleep quickly, which I'm blessed that way, fortunately, I climb into a plane and before we're even off the ground, I'm snoozing. So uh, <laughs> years of air travel led to that and it, it works to my advantage here on board the boat, but it'll be up appreciating nature. It might be from 12 o'clock midnight to three o'clock in the morning. And it'll just be first light sailing along. I'm alone there in the cockpit, maybe listening to some music or plinking away in my guitar looking up at the constellations and at some point i'm really looking forward to this is i'm used to seeing the north star particularly when i was up in alaska but it's going to be intriguing to be down south of the equator and be able to look up and see the southern cross overhead in you know beautiful starry night so yeah very much looking forward to that oh that's gonna be incredible and i know you're also a photographer so are you taking equipment that's going to be able to capture that beauty i hope so i you know we've all kind of lapsed towards using our phones for taking pictures and i do plenty of that but i've got a very nice underwater camera that we'll be using extensively once we get to clear waters and i'm taking along my real nice canon slr so when i get to fatu Hiva in that bay of virgins uh, I'll be able to snap some hopefully lovely photographs. So looking forward to it. That's going to be beautiful. We're asking about the prep work on it. And it is a big deal. I mean, uh, people, well, you, you have to invest a lot of effort. I've been living on my boat about six months out of each year over the course of the last six years. And I've, I've installed most of the systems, water maker, uh, self-steering, a wind turbine to produce energy, solar panels. So when you've sort of put things basically into the boat, you know them really well. So I feel like I've got a command of things, but I had some recent doubts. There was a question that arose about the engine. I, had, I was sailing mm -hmm. along and I was checking the bilge and I found that water was flowing into the boat, which is a little bit troublesome if you're going thousands <laughs> of miles across an ocean. So right. it, it turned out it was siphon action for a little tube that was coming off a seal for the propeller shaft. It was one of those things you could overlook, but needless to say, of some consequence. Yeah. But you resolve those issues and you feel like the boat's as solid as it's going to be. You provision it with food that will last you. I think... I think Julie and I could probably live on the food that's currently on board the boat, much of which came from Trader Joe's. We've got <laughs> lots of peanuts and cashews and walnuts and things stashed away below the floorboards and, and various cabinets and cupboards. But, I'm a um, huge, of, huge fan of Trader Joe's. <laughs> oh my, absolutely. It gets, it, yes, it is. it has sustained me in many of my travels, but uh, chili, Stag's chili is always a good standby, black beans, lots of rice. 
and hopefully we're catching fish. I've been fairly successful in the past in tossing a line or sometimes two off the stern of the boat as we're sailing along and pulling up a beautiful mahi-mahi or something that will sustain yeah. you for three, four days of great, just lovely meals. Yeah. Um, what are you doing for like fresh fruits and vegetables and that sort of thing? That's one of the situations where certain things last a long time. Cabbage, for instance, is a great purchase because you can make salads for many, many weeks and it doesn't go bad quickly. You know, your bananas and whatnot are apt to go by pretty fast. So when we leave, we're going to be stocking up with all the freshies we can do. And since Mexico is just a wash in delicious avocados, I think we'll probably be eating guacamole nightly <laughs> until, <laughs> until they all turn brown and they're gone. But uh -huh. you consume freshies up front and there's going to be a spell in which it's just going to be black beans and rice and things like that. And then once we get to the Marquesas, it's just, it's verdant, but it also is just rich with all kinds of interesting fresh fruits. Bananas are just there for the picking as you go up trails. Um, if you're down in the village areas, you've got to be a little bit watchful because they do view the profusion of growth, the wealth of the land as part of kind of their cultural history and their rights. So you respectfully ask the natives if you can take something or you might engage in some sort of trade, offer them something that would be useful that they can't get uh, easily locally. But wow. expect to get bananas and oh, there's breadfruit there. There's all kinds of interesting things. And so once again, we'll be stocking up. And then a little bit farther along as we get from the Marquesas, from these high volcanic, gorgeous looking islands, we'll then go to the two motas, which are just low lying atolls with nary a bit of land. It's just kind of a ring of coral with safe anchorage within gin clear water, lots of fish, gorgeous coral reefs to swim on and spearfish. Mm -hmm. And then from there you go on to the society islands, Tahiti, Bora Bora, etc. And those will have large marketplaces where we can buy virtually anything. Although from what I understand, it's horribly expensive in French Polynesia. The things that you can get easily would be brie cheese, which is fine, and mm -hmm. wonderful French bread that I think are subsidized by the French who still basically run the islands. Okay. The natives seeing their food, the bounty of their lands as part of their culture and having these particular customs that you have to follow. It just sounds so early explorer-like and something that most people would not be familiar with. And also just gives you an idea as a traveler that other places do have these cultural requirements in place that we have to follow. So did you do a lot of studying up, a lot of research on what the expectations would be once you got there? I know a lot about it historically. I'm a big fan of, you know, reading nautical literature and I've, and, uh, Captain James Cook has been my hero for most of my life, probably. So I've read the narrative accounts of his travels through the Society Islands and up to Hawaii and whatnot. And the cultures have been very interesting. I mean, there, cert certain island groups have a rather bad history with regards to uh, violence towards the sailors and vice versa. Uh, the folks in French Polynesia seem largely to be incredibly um, unmaterialistic. Uh, although there was problems would arise. There was a lot of thievery when the Tahitians would come aboard the king's vessels and they were coveting anything made out of iron, nails, 
virtually anything that can be extracted from the planks of the boat <laughs> would be. Oh my gosh. <laughs> or, perhaps, or perhaps traded by the sailors for favors or items available on the islands. But as communities, it's been, I think, a very much a communal society where things are frequently shared. So has that changed? I'm sure it has. I probably know a great deal more about what things were like in the late 1700s than, than I do now. But uh, mm-hmm. very much looking forward to it. And it's one of the great joys of travel is experiencing virtually different outlooks on life and life values. So really looking forward to that. Yeah, I think that's going to be really exciting. And also all of the different food that, like you said, is plentiful there that is so vastly different from anything that would be available here. Uh, When I was in Hawaii, I had the opportunity to eat breadfruit, but I actually never tried it. So that's one thing I think a lot of people have not tried, but there's probably all kinds of other produce that is going to be available. And then really probably even different fish, I'm assuming. Probably, yeah, maybe the same families, but yeah, different fish, probably different flavors, a different availability of fish. Uh, One thing that's interesting is we leave uh, from French Polynesia and move on to Tonga and Fiji. We'll be increasingly encountering where kava root is available, and that's used to create this uh, potent drink that has kind of a, I think, a semi-narcotic effect upon you. Your tongue your tongue turns numb. Uh, I think you get a little bit of a rush to the head. And when you visit these outlying villages, the tradition is you as the traveler, you as the visitor, you arrive with kava root that you've perhaps purchased in the marketplace. And it's very interesting. It seems like something from another era, another world entirely. But in order to have permission to anchor within their waters and to walk their islands and sort of participate in the society, you would bring a gift of kava root to the king or the leader of that local island. And it leads to quite a tradition. And they grind up the kava root, turn it into this drink that's shared by you and the members of the society. And with that, basically, you're sharing something with them and they in turn share their hospitality and the beauty of their island with you in return. So that kind of quaint tradition is lovely, perhaps something we could use a little bit more of in our own modern societies. But uh, I look forward to that kind of thing. I think that's going to be exciting and a lot of fun. Yeah, memorable for sure. Are you going to be doing a lot of spearfishing? I sure hope so. I've been very successful in the Caribbean. I'm. I, it's kind of, it's interesting. I've been a hunter before in the past. I lived in Alaska for 10 years and uh I would go out moose hunting for a number of years. I, you know, I had my tags. I was allowed to go out and do it. And I'd take out my 30 out six with a buddy and hunt. And I have to tell you, I was never terribly dissatisfied if I wasn't successful. And I never was, as a matter of fact. But um, I don't have a, I don't, I feel bad killing anything. I've always sort of admired the Indian tradition where they'll take down some animal. And there's almost like a thoughtful prayer that's given for the life of that animal that's basically yielding its life for your sustenance. And fish are a different breed. We don't relate to them nearly as well, but I still very much have that feeling. And I've killed a a large number of (laughs) grouper and snapper in the Caribbean and here in the Sea of Cortez. And I'll continue doing so. There's just, there's no better, fresher protein. There's no bycatch. It's not like a net where you wind up catching a dolphin or something. What you Mm -hmm. aim for is hopefully what you get. And you can be very selective and only cull those things that are sustainable. So I feel good about that. But even with the fish life, it troubles me 
slightly. I have my hesitation and I try to be a little bit more respectful and certainly only kill what I need to in order to uh, keep fresh protein on board the boat. Yeah. And I think that we would really do so much better to think like that, even in food that we purchase at restaurants, choose off the menu or even at the store. I have stopped eating for the most part, any kind of shellfish. And part of it is shrimp. The oceans are dragged in order to collect the number of shrimp that we see in the stores and markets and restaurants. And that damages coral reefs. It damages so much of the ecosystem. And I just don't want to be a willing participant in that kind of damage, you know, secondary participant there by purchasing it. Um, So I think it's really important to think of what our contribution is as, you know, part of the food chain that eats other parts of the food chain. How do we do this most uh, in a most ecologically friendly way? And, and of course, without having a huge amount of guilt over it either. Right. They'll become increasingly important, certainly, but it is now. But with regards to my hopes for the future, yeah, I will be eating a lot of fish. I've had various spear guns on board the boat. I now have this absolutely wonderful 115 centimeter long, very lethal spear gun with which I I hope to be quite successful in my underwater endeavors. But I can dive fairly deeply and I will hopefully be able to get some really nice fish. One thing that will be interesting though, and maybe a little bit troublesome, is that I've been in a lot of waters where the shark populations have been completely depleted. You just don't see them here in the Sea of Cortez. And as far away as we are from China, nevertheless, there's still the habit of catching sharks, finning them, frequently tossing their bodies overboard, and shipping the shark fins to the Orient. Um, So it's not a problem here in the Sea of Cortez for the most part. I've never seen a shark personally. I'd I'd actually love to. But once you get to the South Pacific, it's a different story. Uh, Black tips, white tips, they're pervasive. They're on all the coral reefs. I'll be seeing them regularly. So when you go down, you spear a fish and it sets out its vibrations and it bleeds into the water. You can expect very, very shortly to have visitations from some of the local denizens of the reef there. And so it'll behoove me to carefully and quickly get out of the water and get my kill in a place where it's safe and the sharks don't need to come around and explore (laughs) or attempt to uh, take away my catch. Yeah, there's so much to think about. Are those sharks any more or less lethal than the ones that you would encounter around here? And we get a lot of great whites that have a really bad reputation, but then if you take a look at some of the reputable information from marine organizations, they, they really make them seem a lot less dangerous than the common stories are. But what about the sharks in the South Pacific? I'm just thinking of some of the the stories that I've read about, you know, and again, you, you mentioned Herman Melville has some really horrific stories about shark attacks or, you know, ships going down and the shark circling them. Do you have any idea what their personalities are like? There's tiger sharks, there's bullshit. These are the ones that kind of have the bad rep and clearly the great white sharks, which I, I'm from Southern California and uh, my brother is a surfer there. So yeah, they had a, a quite a few of the, the great whites, mostly juvenile ones swimming there in right between the surfers who might be completely unaware of the fact there's this great white, you know, maybe 20 feet away from them. Uh, right. It's probably better that they don't know. But exactly. when, I, when I'm there, <laughs> 
But when I'm spearfishing on the reefs, I think largely they're going to be ones that are considered a little bit more innocuous. They might be inquisitive, but uh, hopefully not too terribly aggressive. And if it boils down to it, a shark really wants a fish on the end of my spear, I will <laughs> I will happily yield that for the sake of my own safety. So we'll, yeah. we'll see how it goes. And if we get a chance to talk or you interview me a year from now, I'll, I'll be able to probably tell you some stories about sharks. Oh, I would love that. I would love that. And there are a lot of other fish that you have to worry about too. It's not just the sharks, right? I mean, there's other aggressive fish and eels and jellyfish. Are there a lot of jellyfish over there? There certainly are. Maybe not not in these first locations, but you go to a place like Palau and it's famed for just having millions of them filling these bays. So that'll be interesting in its own right. Uh, I've had some experiences with moray eels. I do a lot of diving. For me, really the greatest joy of sailing is getting to interesting locations with my home where I can spend as much time as possible underwater. But in the Caribbean, I had some experiences with mores, which I love. They're so graceful underwater with their snake-like movements. But sometimes, and you don't know if it's true aggression or curiosity. You're hearing my ship's clock there. Uh, oh. <laughs> ding, dinging out the time. But, I thought somebody uh, but, was but ringing had, your doorbell. <laughs> <laughs> but I've had, but I've had mores just kind of come at me, and you sort of swat at them, try to chase them away, but they very seemingly aggressively will swim right towards you. And uh, considering they do have sharp teeth and they're alien in their appearance, you try to kind of keep at least an arm's length away from them. So we'll see. Uh, I it, whole new adventure, probably a whole spate of new animals that I've never seen before, but I look forward to experiencing for the first time. It's, it's going to be really quite the adventure. The other thing is, I don't think I have ever seen the clarity of water that I'll be seeing once I get to the Tuamotos or Fiji or Tonga. I've seen videos of just gin clear water and beautiful coral reefs with, you know, every color imaginable. So it's, it's, it's going to be, it's going to be very exciting. I'm really looking forward to it. Feel the boats ready to go. We're all post COVID and looking for new adventures and want to get out there and so the time's right. The only trouble is COVID has created this backlog. A lot of folks who had planned on going to French Polynesia, say, two, three years ago, myself included, basically got held off. It was kind of interesting. So there's, uh, I came back to the Pacific Ocean in 2020 through the Panama Canal. We worked our way up from Panama, Costa Rica, got up to Mexico. And there was a number of boats leaving that spring to French Polynesia, and they actually got cold back. They sailed out 500,000 miles, and through single sideband radio, they were notified that basically the French Polynesia was shutting its doors to new arrivals, which is kind of wow. ironic because if they're worried about COVID, here's folks who have spent three weeks <laughs> in the ocean. You know, there's not a better quarantine that you could ask for. So anybody who arrived on the islands in a healthy condition absolutely did not have COVID, but they weren't allowing that. So these poor folks who had, you know, invested time, effort, preparations, and found themselves on their way for their great adventure wound up actually getting turned around and forced to sail back somewhere else. Mm -hmm. but I can imagine how folks, disappointing that would be. A thousand miles out, and then you're told, sorry. I, and I know that that's just the way that the world is. Uh, you know, since COVID, but that would be just so frustratingly disappointing. Well, I think some of those folks probably have cooled their heels like myself. <laughs> and now this this year, 
they're venturing for us. So it probably won't be these, some of the anchorages I'll be encountering won't be nearly as quiet as they might be in other years. I think this backlog, the surplus of sailors uh, will probably be selling forth this year and filling some of the harbors. So maybe a little busier than usual, but uh, mm-hmm. still looking forward to it. You know, a few, maybe it was last year, there was a group of musicians who came out to the Warner Grand, which is a really beautiful art deco theater in downtown San Pedro. And they were promoting the protection clearly of the ocean and the environment, uh, saying that probably within the next 20 years or so, I believe, I, I don't know if that's the right number of years or not, but it wasn't very many. It would be within our lifetime. Mm -hmm. Many of those small islands are going to be covered in water because of the rising seas and and the melting ice caps. And so it's been one of those places on my bucket list to go and see before that happens. I'm really sad that, you know, that that is the Uh, projection for those islands, but um, I'd be really interested in hearing once you're done with your amazing adventure, what it's like there and what they're doing to avoid that kind of catastrophe. And if it looks like that, that's actually the projection. Yeah, I've I've heard some of the same stories and read those uh, articles and things with great interest. I think Nui is one of those islands. There's certain nations, island nations, basically, that are recognizing that they're going to go away. And there's serious consideration and thought and preparation right now for moving their entire populations and trying to find some other destination where their whole island people can move to because they're, they're sadly will just be swept beneath the ocean swells and go away entirely. Uh, with respect to your comment about getting out there while you can, uh, I guess in a sense, that's what we're doing. There is a certain sadness though, when you feel like you're sort of on the, say the farewell tour for <laughs> coral reefs in right. the Great Barrier Reef or something like that, where it's it's the sad recognition that we might be part of that last generation and shame on us for passing on to those who follow uh, a planet that doesn't have nearly the beauty, the charismatic animals, uh, just the natural wealth that we had when we were children first growing up. So it's, 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 it's a strange feeling. You want to do it, you want to experience it, but without doubt, I, I anticipate a certain amount of sadness with regards to the fact that it'll be the recognition that I will be perhaps the last generation to see some of these spectacular sights. Yeah, the richness and uh, like you said, the diversity of the animals, you know, there's a whole set of species that will perhaps never be seen again with the demise of these islands and cultures that are going to be irreparably changed. And hopefully in the meantime, anybody who's listening can take a look and see what actionable steps can be taken to help the environment and kind of prevent this inevitable train wreck that we seem to be on. Um, But I don't want to be a a downer about it. So I do want to hear in terms of preparing for all of this, I mean, charting your course and the amount of time that you're going to be there, because you just mentioned a year from now, is it going to take a full year for you to, to do this whole journey that you're about to embark on? It's, it's kind of, at this point, still, it's, it's open-ended. We're just not sure. Um, 
think the Pacific Ocean, just think you're basically hopping onto a conveyor belt and being swept westward. You rely upon the trades to get there, and it's downwind sailing. The wind's pushing you along to the west. So you start in the Eastern Pacific, you know, you hit the French Polynesia, Tonga, Fiji, and the, then it's interesting though, because there's so many islands in, in Oceania. Uh, there's a wonderful image that I've seen on Facebook a number of times, and I, I probably post it myself. There's certain satellite views of Earth where you look down and literally all you see is the Pacific Ocean. It's such an incredibly vast ocean. And so there's island groups. As you're sailing along, there'll be some island nation to the north of you, say the Marshall Islands or or something to the south, and you're having to make decisions. And once you've made that decision, basically you've chosen your path. And there's no, you can't simply say, well, I'd, I'd really like to see that other island group to the north because the winds won't permit you to get back to them. You're, you're just inexorably being swept westward. So our original thought was actually to sail to French Polynesia and the French, they're, they're, you're, you're only allowed 90 days within all the islands there. And basically they kick you out. It's the end of your visa. And our thought was to leave the boat there, go back to French Polynesia next year. But the sad part was there's the sailing season that lasts comfortably until November before the cyclones start to come in. And we decided why, why be inhibited by French policy, French Polynesian's uh, policy? We're just going to carry on, enjoy the season and continue moving westward. And our plan right now is we actually already have made reservations to keep the boat in Fiji. And that won't happen until the end of October. So what was to be a plan of maybe 90 days has devolved into something where we're going to be out sailing for probably a full eight months or so. And I won't be back to my home in Colorado till sometime in November. Uh, Oh my gosh. Right in the middle of snow season. I, well, yeah, I've, I've missed I've missed absolutely the glorious the, the summer and the in the fall months so much for pickleball and hikes and <laughs> spending time with my newfound friends in my newfound state of Colorado. I just I just started to feel that I was a member. I established a nice community of friends there, and uh, so it was parting was a little bittersweet because I knew I was going away for a very long time, and actually won't be returning to Colorado till the snow's fallen. And the temperatures have dropped and I'll be in the throes of winter yet again. So <laughs> I, mm-hmm. my timing is, is absolutely dismal, but this is, I've got uh, the health, I've got the opportunity, I've got a magnificent sailboat, and I'm just going to take advantage of this. So we'll get to Fiji. And after that, come next season, we'll just continue and exploring. And at some point you get to the end of the Pacific, whether it be Indonesia or South China Sea, I, I don't quite know at this point. And decisions have to be made. You know, what do you do with your boat? Do you sell it in maybe some not terribly advantageous location? Do you stick it on one of these big boat carriers? It's, they're expensive, but they could perhaps ship my vessel all the way to, to the Mediterranean. Or, or maybe do the very long journey, cold, <laughs> rather desolate, from the area of Japan to the northeast up to Alaska and then back down the west coast of the U.S., of Canada, and the United States. So all bets are off. I'm leaving open the possibility of sailing for the next five years. Stay healthy, keep the boat afloat. <laughs> and uh, as long as I'm enjoying it, it's one of those things that why not participate in? Why not? I love that. I love your adventurous spirit to just check everything out 
in the world that you possibly can. I think that it's really important to do things like that. I, I retired fairly early. I retired at age 61. And I did so because my father had died actually at age 60. And I just felt like life is short and the years that I have are a gift. And the prospect of sailing has been something that I've held near and dear for most of my life. And I've read hundreds or thousands of books, uh, nautical books, about people's experiences, their disasters, all aspects of it. So it seemed like this was the chance, the gift that I was given. And I have a beautiful, incredibly seaworthy vessel. And like I say, with health being there, might as well take advantage of it and get out. So this is the time. I'll do it until it's no longer fun. And then I've got a, a beautiful home and good friends to return to back in Colorado. Mm-hmm. Do you have any concerns, especially during the 2,500 plus mile or the 3,000 plus miles that you're going to be embarking on that are only ocean? Um, do you have any concerns about the weather or I've never sailed. So as you're getting pushed along westward bound on this conveyor belt of water, are you always, if you plan it right, ahead of bad weather then? You know, you can't, uh, nature being what it is, you, you, you can't deal with complete certainty. You simply, you go with the best available information. So by waiting till when I am to depart, which will be probably mid-March, mid part of this month to early April, we're selecting times that tend to avoid the big storms, the cyclones that ravage you know, the, this, the southern waters later on, in, starting in November. Uh, but you never know. Uh, there's undoubtedly will encounter squalls along the way. And typically they seem to arise at nighttime. So all of a sudden we might be racing up on deck, shortening sail and preparing for these massive gusts of winds that can kind of knock your boat about and a deluge of water raining down on you. It's going to be interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, We've got all the appropriate safety devices on board. I've got beacons that will communicate with satellites and tell them where we are. Uh, I've got a life raft. If if the boat were actually going down, we'd have a place to survive afterwards and hopefully await rescue. So you hope for the best. You plan with available information, but there's just there's no certainty. Um, the other thing is when you get out like into the two motors and whatnot, you're talking about low lying, really difficult to see islands or atolls that are going to be virtually invisible at nighttime. And you better darn well have some pretty good navigation and be carefully navigating those waters. And even once you get to them, you don't dare go into a lot of these atolls unless the sun is behind your shoulder and fairly high up in the sky to enable you to see where you're going because there's the coral heads right below that you hit one of those going in at a number of knots. And you can do some very serious damage to your boat, if not actually sink it. So as captain, uh, there's always a little bit of an anxiety level. You're always worried about the maintenance of your boat and if there's any issues. But nature can throw things at you that come in unexpected ways. And that's part of what makes it thrilling. It's part of what, the, you know, sometimes keeps you up at night and causes concern. But you do your best. But there's no guarantees in life, you know, you can certainly, you can end your life on the 405 in Southern California in the midst right. of a traffic jam. We, we take our chances and I'd rather do so doing something that I truly love and have a passion for. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I agree. Yeah, it's so funny because Sophie and I have an episode coming up. We did another lists with Sophia and one of the things, two, two things that you just spoke about 
one of them was I mentioned that there's that saying, it's a fine line between courage and stupidity. And, you know, it's courageous if you're a success and it's stupid if you failed. And I think a lot of people don't want to fail. And so they don't embark on these adventures and these journeys. They have this inherent risk associated with them that you kind of have to accept at the beginning, right? That you you are choosing to do something really exciting. And in so doing, it is not exclusive of that risk that something really awful could happen. Like you said, it, it, could, it could actually be a question of life and death, but you've got to do it. There's risk everywhere. Like you said, the 405 could be your demise and going down to spearfish for a fish and having a shark come up behind you or something could also be your demise. You just, um, but, but you're living, I mean, you're really, you're exploring, you're seeing what the world has to offer to you and you're an active participant in the world at that point. And I don't think that there's anything better than that. You can get little glimpses of it. We had an interesting experience. It's it's one that was, um, well, very memorable, very striking, and may have even been changing in terms of my philosophy and whatnot. But Julie and I were in the Cayman Islands and doing a lot of diving as we typically do. And there's they've, they've got, in order to protect the reefs, they have these mooring balls that you are supposed to encourage to tie up to so that you don't have to drop the anchor down onto a coral head. And we did so. It's kind of funny. It's it's people oftentimes will say, "Yeah, I felt kind of queasy about something." That day we dove, uh, we tied up properly to this very nice looking brand new mooring ball, went over the back, and like I say, I had kind of a little trepidation that day for reasons that I couldn't explain at the time. We did a dive. There was a lot of current. It was kind of murky. It wasn't a terribly pleasant dive, and oftentimes when I go out, I inflate this uh, like a it's a little float that I'll tie up to the coral head. And it's just a marker to say, this is the area, start looking for the boat, which is overhead at some point. So it's just an indication that you're back to your starting point. And we did our dive. We came back and I saw that mark and I look up and my boat's not there. First light is is nowhere to be seen. She's gone. Oh, no. And so the two of us from fairly deep waters popped up in her scuba gear, looked around and by kicking and, and thrusting my head higher, I saw my boat, my sailboat, well off on the horizon at a fairly significant distance. And we were between two islands in an area of fairly strong currents. There were no boats to be seen. And it was, there'd be a question about even getting swimming back to the land, but I very much wanted to get my boat back, which was basically blowing, drifting in the general direction of Cuba, like some 90 miles to the north. And so I took my tank off. I had my snorkel gear. And I started heading off towards in chase of my boat. And, you know, I thought, well, I'm a strong swimmer. I'll certainly catch up with it. I've got my fins on. But as swimming along, it became very apparent that it was actually gaining on me. It was getting farther and farther away. And I'm making a commitment as I'm swimming along. I'm getting farther and farther away from Julie, who's floating there with gear closer to the island. And I'm getting farther and farther away from from land with the recognition that at some point, I'm just a tiny little bobbing head that even if somebody came in search of me, if I can't find my boat, it wasn't clear that they'd be able to find me in a sea with, you know, with swells. 
And it was one of those moments that you go, you know, I've made decisions in life. I've tried to make good decisions and try to do things founded upon knowledge and awareness of possible issues that could arise. But this was just one of those surprise things. And it was the real recognition that that day might be my last day. And it had a lot of impact upon me. I thought about it deeply over the next several days. And it was quite an interesting experience. I did realize that my life could end, or it's going to, obviously, but I could accept it. But I was kind of thinking back as I was swimming along, chasing my boat. I was thinking about my life and the situation. And it was it was a very moving experience, actually, in many ways. Uh, the outcome of this is that my boat hit some sort of little eddy or the wind gust died down. It stalled out and I gave it one last push. It turned out it had drifted about 1.6 miles by the time I actually climbed aboard the boat again. And mm -hmm. There was the mooring ball firmly attached to my boat. <laughs> oh, no. my, 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 it was tied up properly to the boat. But although it was new and the line from it was new, uh, some prop must have clipped the line and it was just hanging on by a thread. Bad on me for not having given a, a close inspection before we dove to the bottom. Mm -hmm. But it's one of those things that all looked fine and it could very, very easily have turned something that was anything but and could have been the end of my life. Uh, which was interesting. Just, you know, we, we put ourselves, we, we try to minimize danger by being prepared, by having the right equipment, making good decisions, but you never know, life happens. Life happens indeed. What an incredible adventure. I mean, life is an adventure, right? And it's just there for us to recognize it, take advantage of it while we're healthy, while the opportunities are there. Like Dawn says, I hope you really enjoyed all of the boat sounds. This was a fun episode to record, and it is only the first of two parts. But I used a different recording method for this one. But it's all on a single track, which is why you kind of hear us talking over each other occasionally. Usually I record on two tracks and I can fix those kinds of overlaps. But on this one, you're hearing the ship clock, you're hearing bells, the birds, the boat itself rubbing against the dock. So that's a lot of fun. I really wish Don and his partner, Julie Dunn, the best adventure possible. I'm so excited for them. I love hearing about how they prepared all of the provisions, the planning, everything that goes along with this trip. So be sure to check the show notes. I actually have a link for you to follow this adventure as well as links to some of the other things that we talked about. Please take a moment to rate this episode because your ratings really do help move this podcast closer to the top of searches so that my friends and I can reach more people. I'm looking forward to sharing more upcoming In the Company of Friends talks with you. So be sure to follow me on the socials and the dot com all at the Queen Trail Podcast. That's T-H-E-Q-U-A-I-N T-R-E-L-L-E podcast. I am Syl Annan, the Queen Trow. And until next time, I wish you passion, adventure, zest for life, intrepidness, curiosity, elegance, and beauty. <laughs>